If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to join me in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. It's a great book. It is, in effect, Nehemiah's memoirs. His accounting of the mega construction project that was born in his heart by God to go back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he has been slugging away at effort and labor and work. And beyond that, he has been enduring attack after attack from our adversary, the devil. His adversary really had names, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. And we know that the armies then assembled against him and people have written letters and been talking about him and he has engaged in spiritual warfare and had to encourage all of the builders to stay at it. And we're going to round a corner here in verse 5 and the attack will now be ramped up yet again. And it moves from the external to the internal and we are introduced to internal strife and in the very first phrase of Nehemiah chapter 5 we see a shock of pain. In fact, the phrase is it was a great cry. Strife from the inside. Now Nehemiah, having had to endure all that he was under and engage with the adversary, must now deal with an attitude that has developed within the camp. You and I might imagine that people who were doing a work of God on the scale like rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem would just do everything right. We would imagine that they would always get along, that they would be mature, and that they would treat each other properly all the time, but they're fallen just like you and I are. And the fact is, we note in here what one commentator said is the weapon of selfishness unleashed by the devil himself. Now, as soon as I say that, I'm going to preach out of Nehemiah chapter 5 on selfishness. You think to yourself, that probably should move down to the four and five-year-old or be saved for junior church. But I want you to comprehend something about your dark little human heart. You have a great, infinite capacity for selfishness. It plagues your marriage. It plagues your relationships. It plagues your ministry. And it plagues the church, whether you know it or not. If I were to define selfishness, perhaps I would attempt to do it in this way and see if you can sense some of this in your own heart. Selfishness is having the attitude that people exist merely to meet my agenda. People exist merely to meet my wishes and to fulfill my needs. Thus, the value of anything, any person, any ministry, Any church and even God himself is determined only in light of what they do for me. And this attitude is not only apparent in outward behavior, but it is also evident in our secret thought life. And if it is left unchecked, it is destructive. Selfishness will destroy relationships It will destroy your marriage, it will destroy ministries, it will destroy churches, and it is one of the favorite weapons of the adversary. If I were to say to you that Nehemiah 4, 5, and 6 are perhaps some of the most visual human display of interacting with the adversary, I don't think I'd be wrong in my opinion. He is unleashing all of his weapons, and selfishness is one of his favorites. He used it in the first family. 
where one brother, fueled by self-motivation and hatred and self-interest, murdered his other brother. He used it in the earliest church, the church at Jerusalem, when the Grecian widows were murmuring and complaining that the Hebrew widows were being taken care of to a greater degree. It literally redefined church leadership. Even in the early church, as established by the Apostle Paul, he had to take time to write, and this is very vivid language, in Galatians 5.15 he wrote this, but if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Stop eating each other up. Stop biting and devouring each other. You are far too selfish. I heard of a little girl who had some friends over and she was playing in the backyard. Her dad was in the house and he could hear the kids playing out in the backyard and he could hear them arguing back and forth and they were shouting loudly and he thought, man, this can't happen at my house. What will all the other parents think? So he stepped out on the back deck and he said, honey, you guys have to stop arguing. You have to stop yelling at each other. And she said, daddy, it's okay. We're just playing church. That was funnier in the first two services. The reality is a whole lot of people come in with a selfish agenda. A whole lot of people miss the fact that this is not about them, and I'm including myself in that reality. But rather, we have been commissioned to do something that is far greater than us, that requires our faith and cooperation to get it done, not unlike them on the wall. And as J. Vernon McGee, an old preacher, wrote, he said, In the history of the church, we have seen that when the devil could not destroy the church by persecution, the next thing he would do is join it. And I don't mean that he, Lucifer himself, joins the church, but I will tell you, a selfish heart will do the work of the devil within the church. And a whole lot of people are doing the devil's work without knowing it. I would say to you, most frequently, the worst enemy of the church is the church. The thing that keeps the church from moving forward is none other than the church. The reality is the thing that keeps the church from reaching the world outside the church is the attitude of selfishness that exists inside the church. I would say to you, what keeps most believers from growing in Christ is other believers who will not spiritually mature. Selfishness. We have to establish a biblical principle. It is always striking to me when I take time to get into the book of Ephesians and I make note of this biblical principle. This is a rule for you and this is a rule for me as we interact with each other. Be kind one to another. Be nice to each other. That's a biblical principle. It is inescapable. The Apostle Paul was talking to the Ephesian church and they struggled with this. He dedicated nearly an entire chapter to exhort them to simply get along and love one another. Here's here's what he writes, and you have to listen. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, indicating that that wasn't going on. He continues on, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. In other words, he's communicating the devil is, as it were, watching. And one of the things that he loves to see is that selfishness begin to breed within an individual's heart or the heart of a church or a marriage. And what he will then do is simply sit back and bait the hook with this mentality. Think only of yourself and not of others. Think only of yourself and not of others. And so Paul writes this, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. 
Don't let any communication that is corrosive to others even come out of your mouth, but rather, in effect, that which is good to the use of edifying, that speech which builds others up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Think about what he's having to pause and talk about to a group of believers. He'll sum it all up in verse 32 when he says, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. By the way, the church at Ephesus was an effective church. By the way, the church at Ephesus was pastored by a guy named Timothy. We're not dealing necessarily with poor leadership as it was established by Paul. They were discipled by Paul and pastored by Timothy. We're not talking about a church that wasn't growing and reaching its community. The fact is, we're talking about an undertaking of a work of faith, and yet in their midst, words like this are being used. Bitterness, wrath, clamor, anger, evil speaking, slander, malice, all of that was going on. And the Apostle Paul literally has to say to this group of believers, be nice to one another. How is it that selfishness can creep in where people should know better? That's exactly what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 5. As he's writing in his memoir, he begins, and I want you to notice here in verse 1 what's happening. People are beginning to talk. Here's what we read. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. Now, what are they talking about? What are they crying about? What is the source of this shriek of pain? For there were that said, some people said this. There were some people that were talking, and here's what they said. Now, I understand if you're new to the faith and and you don't know a lot of the Bible, some of this is going to feel like convoluted and confusing language. But just stick with me a second. Here's what they're talking about. We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Verse 3, some also there were that said, other people were talking, and here's what they said. We've mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. In verse 4, there's another group that's talking. We've borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already, neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Some people said this, and others said that. Some people were talking about this, and other people were talking about that. All in the midst of a mega construction project that God has miraculously provided for, and enabled, and protected. All the while, work is being done. They are finishing the work. They're withstanding against the enemy. And right here in the camp, people are talking. It's bubbling up. And it is nasty what's going on. I'll help you understand just a little bit. Here's what's happening in verse 2. Some people are crying out and saying, Hey, we're going hungry. Because we don't own any land. We have no capacity to farm. We have no way to keep herds. We're starving here. There was another group in verse 3 who said, well, we own land, but because of the dearth, we've had to mortgage our property just to buy food. In verse 4, there was a group of people who said, well, we own land, but we're so financially strapped, we're having to borrow money so that we can pay taxes, the king's tribute. And yet there was a group, the wealthy leaders, who loaned their kinsmen 
loaned their fellow brethren money, and that was a problem. Because for collateral, what they were doing was they were taking their land, they were taking their vineyards, and they were taking their children and putting them in bondage and using them as servants. This is not good. In fact, with everything that Nehemiah had on his plate, this is not something that he needed to deal with. It is literally an outbreak. It is an epidemic of selfishness. And it has arrived right there in the camp. So what does Nehemiah do? I mean, Nehemiah, after all, is a spiritual man. Nehemiah is a mature man. Nehemiah is a leader. That's why I'm so comforted to read in verse 6 this. And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. That is righteous indignation. Some of that, I do believe, is bubbling up on the inside. You mean with everything that I have in front of me, with everything that I have on my plate, I've now got to not only worry about Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and all the armies that are assembling on the plain, I have to worry about all of the material and what's going on in the build. I now have to worry about you guys taking advantage of each other. He was angry, and it's righteous indignation. And he's told us something. Even when he received the burden initially from God, he prayed and he fasted and he mourned for four months before he acted on it. And when he arrived at Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, he stepped back for days before he revealed his plan. He has already established the pattern of putting in check himself before he acts. And he does it here in verse 7 in the second part. It says, then I consulted with myself. I hate that for him. I consulted with myself. There was no one to carry this burden but Nehemiah. There was no one around for him to talk to but himself. But in the second part of that verse, he says, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. Didn't matter where you ranked. Didn't matter where you came from. Nehemiah had to address this issue head on. And so he does. Nehemiah is going to respond accordingly to the problem of selfishness which has begun to spring up within this construction project and within this family of faith. And he knows something that I know and he knows something that you know and he's aware of something that the scripture teaches. Where selfishness is and it roots and grows up, it produces really corrupt fruit. And he begins to address that. You are selfish. And he goes on to say this, You exact usury, every one of his brother. Do you hear that word? That's a family word, brother. And I set a great assembly against them. You exact usury. Is that a good Old Testament word? Ye exact usury. You go to church at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, you want somebody to preach on exacting usury. Here's what he's saying. The Old Testament law said that you could lend and that you could borrow from a fellow Jew. They're brethren. They're in the family. But it was against Mosaic law to exact usury, to put an interest rate over the top of that which was borrowed. What they have begun to do is damaging to the testament of God. And verse 11, if you're into that sort of thing, even tells you that it's one hundredth of the part. It's 1% per month. That's the interest rate, 12% a year. That doesn't seem like a staggering amount, but it is enough to enrage Nehemiah. 
Because Nehemiah isn't concerned about how small the amount is. He is concerned about the fact that disobedience has crept into the camp because your hearts are selfishly motivated. And so he uses the word brethren by reminding them, you are taking advantage of a family member. I am astounded, you can almost sense Nehemiah saying, that you are exacting usury from a brother. I cannot fathom that all of us have engaged in this undertaking of faith, that all of us are working beside each other, that all of us are laboring to weariness, and you are taking advantage of another family member. Never forget your family. And then he goes on, and I won't read all the verses, but he says in verse 8, And I said unto them, We after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? And they held their peace and found nothing to answer. They're silenced. They're speechless. Here's what Nehemiah says. Disobedience against the law is in the camp because your hearts are selfish. And I also sense that you are growing forgetful of what God has done for you. Did you know what he said in verse 8? Have you already forgotten that God redeemed us out of bondage in Babylon and has enabled us to be back here in Jerusalem? And what you have done is you have taken the redemption of God and you have turned it upside down because all of us which were freed from that bondage to be here, you are now taking these children as collateral and bringing them into bondage and putting them to work. Have you forgotten what God has done for you? And forgetfulness is another fruit that grows off the tree of selfishness. And Nehemiah says, in effect, if you want to defeat the fruit of forgetfulness, remember what God has done for you and treat others in light of the freedom that you have achieved from God. Nehemiah is going directly at this. He doesn't care if you're a ruler. He doesn't care if you're a noble. He doesn't care if you're wealthy. He's indignant about it, and he addresses it. And I love how simple verse 12 is. What will the nobles and the rulers do? How will they respond? Verse 12 says this. Then said they, we will. We will restore them and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. And I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. It's as simple as this. They got things right. I love what one pastor wrote. He said this underneath that verse, and they called for smelling salts upon observing that Nehemiah had fainted because the people listened to what he said. They called for smelling salts because Nehemiah hit the ground. He fainted because he said, that's not right. And the people said, you know what? We're wrong. And they squared things up. Nehemiah is addressing the rulers and he's addressing the nobles and he's telling them selfishness is dangerous. Selfishness produces corrupt fruit, ultimately disobedience and forgetfulness, and it will ruin every relationship. And this work that God has given us to do will grind to a halt. We need to fix this, and the people said, we will. Nehemiah is not done there, and you knew that because I'm a pastor, and there has to be more message than that. And so there is. Nehemiah attacks on his own personal example, and what he is going to do by telling us how he's lived is he's going to give us some principles for destroying selfishness in our own lives. 
And you have to dig a little bit to see it, but if you just listen to him talk for a second, you're going to hear him articulate, here's how to get selfishness rooted out of your heart so there is no disobedience nor forgetfulness, no destruction nor damage to the work of God. And I'm interested to hear it because I know I tend to be selfish. So in verse 14, here he goes. Nehemiah, moreover, and also, moreover, and let me continue. That's what he's saying. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year, even unto the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, and he knows we're bad at math, so he says that is 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken of them bread and wine beside 40 shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people, but so did not I because of the fear of God. Now stick with this because there's a lot in there, right? Here's what Nehemiah says. Every governor of Judah before me, and I've been governor for 12 years, took of the people so that he could have food in his household. And beside that, he taxed 40 shekels. And his servants were able, by rule and force, to take that tax from the people and bring it back to him. But did you notice what Nehemiah said? Though I have that right as the governor, and though that precedent has been set before me, I never did it. For all 12 years, I didn't take anything from anybody, and I did not tax them in any way because I feared God. Here's where we learn principle number one for overcoming selfishness. He surrendered, this is amazing, his own personal right. Can you imagine somebody being spiritually mature enough to surrender a right I can because we've been studying 1 Corinthians and the Apostle Paul did the same thing. He said, for the sake of the gospel, I have given some things up so that I might have a more powerful testimony and gospel presentation. I surrender my rights. Even this in 1 Corinthians 9, 4. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Do I not have power? Do I not have authority? Do I not have a right to take ministerially what I need so that I might eat and drink. He comes back in verse 15, does Paul, and says, but I have used none of these things. Neither have I written these things. He took on the form of a servant. He surrendered his rights. Do you know selfishness takes root when we demand our rights? When we demand that our desires and our wants be fulfilled and a way to uproot selfishness is to give up our rights and to take on the form of a servant as Jesus did in Philippians 2, who was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, made himself a human and took on the form of a servant and submitted to the will of his father, even death on the cross for the sake of others. And the Apostle Paul said, look, there are a lot of things that are lawful for me. There are a lot of things that I could demand because of my position, but I surrender my rights for the sake of the gospel. And Nehemiah here is saying, look, guys, I could have done what you did, but so that the work might go forward unimpeded, I surrendered my rights so that I wasn't a stumbling block to anybody around me. He goes on, and I love what he says. Now, you think to yourself, well, What was Nehemiah actually putting out of pocket to feed all of these people? Quite a bit. When you look at verse 17, 
Here's what he begins to tell us. Moreover, again, and also, let me continue. There were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers. And he's looking at them saying, hey boys, I fed some of you at my table. Beside those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. Now here's what it took for Nehemiah to feed people every day under his roof, coming out of his pocket. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me. Now here's what I want to point out as biblical. There is not a vegetable mentioned there. You notice there's an oxen, there's six choice sheep and fowls. And once in ten days store of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor. Why? Because the bondage was heavy upon this people. Now I'm just going to ask you a question. Does that seem like a cheap daily undertaking? One ox, six choice sheep, and fowls. No. I'll answer for you since you're not playing along. That sounds extremely expensive. That's a major undertaking. And he did it all out of pocket. And he says, here was my motivation. I didn't take the bread of the governor. I didn't exercise my right to tax people to cover that bill because I knew the bondage was already heavy upon this people. Here's principle number two. I care about others. I surrender my right and I care about others. I know what the situation was. I knew there was a dearth in the land. I knew people were already struggling to eat. I knew they had mortgaged their lands. I knew it was a challenge and so I didn't want to add to their burden by taxing them. How stunning is it that he cared about other people? Do you know what selfishness will do? It will make sure that you live your life thinking you're the only one with challenges and hardship and trouble. Newsflash, everybody's life is hard. Everybody's life stinks out loud a lot of times. And here's another real hard truth. Someone out there has it harder than you. Not me, but you. I have it harder than everybody else. If you're, not gonna, if you're just not going to play along, I will, I, like, I will get punitive with this and just add minutes to my message of pure boredom. Listen, everybody has a burden to carry and selfishness demands every relationship cater to your burden. Everybody answer to your burden and your grief and your hardship. And I am saying to you, if you want to uproot hardship and, or uproot selfishness, acknowledge that other people have bondage and grief and challenge too and care about others. And Nehemiah is literally saying, I could have. I had every right to, but I surrendered my right because I knew they were under a lot. That's leadership, man. That's spiritual maturity. He goes on in verse 16 and he says this, Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall. Neither bought we any land and all my servants were gathered thither under the work. Here's what he's saying. I, I applied myself to the work on the wall. I was on the team. I didn't have to be on the team. I could have stepped back. I'm the governor of Judah. I didn't have to have a trowel in my hand and rock under my arm, but I was on the team. Unselfish people are part of the work. Selfish people like other people to do the work and make sure they point out where work needs to be done. He also throws in this, and I think this is beautiful. He says, we didn't buy any land. If anybody had insider trading information on land that would be valuable, wouldn't it have been Nehemiah? 
If you show up and the walls are destroyed, land is dirt cheap within the wall. But if you know you're there to rebuild the walls and the value of land is going to skyrocket within the walls, wouldn't you think it'd be okay to just buy a few parcels to sell them off? Nehemiah says, I didn't take advantage of anybody. I didn't buy land. And even my servants, we were all a part of the work. Everybody was on the team. Everybody was in it together. When you find yourself working alongside of others, you will find that it is harder to develop a selfish heart. He surrendered his rights. He cared about other people. He was on the team. And then in verse 19, he says something that that at first when we hear it, sounds a little arrogant. But if we dig a little deeper, we gather what he's saying. Listen to verse 19. He's talking to God now. Now he's praying. Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now there's no exasperation in there. He's not saying, and God, when you look at me, remember what I've done for all these dirty, rotten, scoundrel people. Remember everything that I've done and I've given up. Remember all of that. He's simply communicating this. I'm not working for anybody to notice. I'm not working for anybody's applause. I am only working so that God will tell me, well done. That's how unselfish people work. Matthew Henry, old commentator, pulled this prayer apart, and I love how he pens it. He wrote this. Nehemiah mentions this to God in prayer, not as if he thought he would merit any favor from God as a debt, but to show that he looked not for any recompense of his generosity from men, but depended upon God only to make up to him what he had lost and laid out for his honor. And then this phrase is beautiful. And he reckoned the favor of God enough. He reckoned the favor of God enough. You do comprehend that Nehemiah actually gave up a lot, right? He surrendered his right to amass wealth as the governor of Judah. He surrendered his right to do that. He cared so much about others that not only did he surrender his right to amass wealth, he actually came out of pocket to feed some of them who did not have the ability to feed themselves. He could have stepped back, but he was in it. He was building. He was working on the wall. And in his prayer closet, he is not trumpeting all of this Without intention, he is saying, and God, if nobody ever says thank you, if you notice it, that's enough for me. And God, if nobody ever pats me on the back and says, Nehemiah, what a great man you are, it's okay, God, if only you know. You know why? Because selfish people want to be noticed by people. But Nehemiah wanted to be noticed only by God. When he was praying, here's probably how I would have prayed. Oh God, if you would make these people around me appreciate my work more. Oh God, if you would help my family to respect my decision to live for you and make my friends and co-workers admire the decision I've made to walk a holy life for your glory. Oh God, if you would just let people notice me because I'm doing so much and I give so much and I surrender so many rights. God, I know only you see this work that I'm doing. I know you only see this surrender and the cost to me, the personal cost. And God, I don't know if you have a calculator in heaven, but please keep track of everyone that I fed. This is ridiculous. No, Nehemiah just basically says, oh God, if you would remember what I'm doing in obedience to you, that's enough. 
If you would just look down and see that I'm obeying what you gave me to do, that's enough. If nobody ever says thank you and nobody ever notices me and nobody ever pats me on the back, that's enough. If you are an unselfish person, that's enough. You will find there's a little root of selfishness when you start to think, how come nobody ever says thank you? How come nobody ever sees what I do? How come nobody ever mentions my name? How come nobody ever pats me on the back? How come nobody ever puts their arm around me? It's enough that God sees. I love what one wrote. Unselfish people are like lighthouses. They don't blow any horns. They just shine. You know, it's really hard for selfishness to take root in a heart where the soil is turned up by surrendering rights, caring about others, being on the team, and only working for God's approval. And your marriage will be better, and the workplace will be better, and your relationships will be better, and ministry will be better, and church will be better when you defeat selfishness in your own heart. And here's the thing. That isn't a sermon for four- and five-year-olds and junior church kids who pry toys out of each other's hands. That's for marriages that are crumbling from the inside out because people can't see beyond themselves. That's for people who are saying, I'm isolated and alone and nobody cares about me when everybody cares about you, but you're throwing a really lavish pity party for yourself. That's for people who say, everybody exists, God included, to meet my needs, to fulfill my wishes, and to be along with my agenda. Wrong. Selfishness isn't just an outward behavior. It's in the secret thoughts and the motives and the intents of the heart, and it's destructive, and it's creating disobedience and forgetfulness, and it's fixable. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.